Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my time capsule is the podcast where people tell me the five things from their life, any time in their life, that they wish they had in a time capsule. They pick four things that they love, and one thing that they'd like to put in there so they can forget it. Something they want to bury in the ground and never think of again. My guest in this episode is the writer and comedian Joe Wells. Joe made his name as a political comedian, with critically acclaimed fringe shows including Night of the Living Tories, Ten Things I Hate About UKIP, and I Hope I Die Before I Start Voting Conservative. In recent years, he's moved into more personal material about mental health and being autistic. Joe is a favourite amongst other comedians and has supported Frankie Boyle, something I saw him do recently and they were both fantastic, Alexis Sale and Stephen K. Amos. In 2020, Joe went viral with his stand-up clip Joe Wells on having a non-autistic brother, which gained over 1.3 million views across Twitter, Facebook and YouTube. Joe's written two books, Touch and Joe Go, an adolescent's experience of OCD, published when he was a teenager, hence the title, and his latest book, Differently Wired, 30 Neurodivergent People You Should Know, published in 2022. Now, I've read it, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Joe has appeared on BBC Two's Ouch! Storytelling Live, Amnesty International's Human TV, and he writes for The Revolution Will Be Televised and Have I Got News For You. He can be heard on No Pressure To Be Funny and Meet Me At The Museum, and he also co-hosts a nerdy music podcast called Emergency Mixtape, as well as his own podcast, Neurodivergent Moments, available on most podcast platforms. 
Joe's won Comedy Central's Funniest Student, the Portsmouth Guide Award for Best Comedy three times, was finalist in the Hackney Empire New Act of the Year, runner-up at the Leicester Mercury Comedian of the Year and a finalist at the London New Comedy Awards. The Guardian described Joe as a star of the future, some of the most surprising and thought-provoking material coming from any comedian. So it's a good job we got him now, before he becomes too famous to have time to chat to me about the five things he wants in his time capsule. Lucky us. Here is Joe Wells. Because I thought it was just such a great set you did with Frankie Boyle. Oh, thank you. I think there's an element of the audience in there where they're going, I'm not sure what he's talking about. Right. You sense that? What's he talking about? Do you know when the audience don't get that twist that you do, which is just talking about, how do you describe your brother? He's... um, Severely not autistic, yes, yeah. Yeah, very good. And uh, in a world where constantly people are saying things... Well, the phrases that must constantly annoy you, I should imagine, like, well, we're all a bit autistic, aren't we? Mm, yeah, yeah. And how far up the spectrum is he? And you go, it, it doesn't work like that. Yeah. That's not what it is. Well, I was thinking about it's like, because you could, like, in the same way, argue the same thing around physical disability, but no one does, do they? You know, no. like, I've got a bit of a bad back. You know, so everyone's like a little bit physically disabled, but we would still recognise that physically disabled people are a distinct group, you know, who experience certain things. Absolutely. And whilst there's diversity within that group, you can't just... I suppose it's that that it's often a dismissive thing, isn't it? It's like, well, we're all, you know, we're all, we've all got our stuff to deal with, yeah. <laughs> yeah, quite. And But you could argue, it's like when I could say, well, you know, I've got age. Try dealing yes. with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've all got a little bit of age. But yeah. I've got a bit of age and it gets worse all the time. It's terrible. Terrible. <laughs> it was such an important thing to hear. And I live in a world where the awareness of autism is growing all the time. But even still, my daughter's had a really, really tough time getting an official diagnosis so that she can get some sort of help. Yeah, well, I, I worked in what we call SEND problematically mm-hmm. uh, for five years. Uh, I sort of facilitated a, a co-production group for young people to sort of like um, to have their say. And I sort of worked getting young people into the into the rooms where all the big decisions are being made around sort of local policy making, that sort of thing, and local commissioning. What I would say, which I think a lot of people aren't aware of, is I understand that the reality is often get a diagnosis in order to get support. But actually, that's not the law. And the law gives people rights, whether they have a diagnosis or not. The law is about need. And I think often the law is misrepresented to parents mm. where it's, and, and I understand that <laughs> the reality is that if that law is misrepresented by the school, you then need a diagnosis to work within the system that, that you know, but yeah. actually the law is about need. It's not about whether you've got a diagnosis or not. You know, it's about what does this child need to do well in school and to have an equal footing in school? Absolutely. I mean, and exactly as you say, if you said, well, most of the kids are fine without ramps. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. That's not the point. It's a it's a madness to it, I think. I do feel for parents a lot. It's very, very difficult to um to sort of advocate for your child when, you know, often like the school system can be quite stacked against um young people. It's like one of um one of those things where I, I can see for parents is like, what fight do you want to have, you know? But again, that thing about, the, you know, the Equalities Act isn't about what certificate you've got, you know? <laughs> like, it, it's very sort of, like, broad in how it defines things. And, and you know, people have a lot more rights. That was one of the things that sort of surprised me was, like, because I, I worked for what we call an, an IAS service, 
which I'd recommend sort of utilizing because they're, they're very important services. Mm. Um, so I learned all about the law and what people's rights were. That was my sort of introduction to the job. And then I sort of went out into it and was like, oh, everyone's, <laughs> maybe it's my sort of autistic just a bit as well. I was like, well, these, this is the law and everyone's just <laughs> breaking the law. And it just seemed very um, strange to me. You look at the rest of, of humanity and you go, you have no qualms at all about breaking the law or doing wrong things, do you? And in fact, yeah, you yeah. Know, Natty would never do anything wrong. If he's told you're not allowed to do that, he wouldn't do it. Yeah, no, it really surprised me how much the sort of, um, yeah, the law was sort of just not being put in place. Mm. Um, but I, do, I, th- I think often people don't, always realize that how much the law is on their side and how many how many more rights they have mm. it's whether or not they have got the energy to <laughs> to fight for those right and you know to, to which you know is a battle whether it's you know even though you're you're legal in the right but yeah i think people have a do legally have a lot more rights than they often think they have well um i've set you this task of finding five things to put into a time capsule. Are you happy with that? Yes, yes, I am. Yeah, I've got my five things. Well, that's good. I haven't thought about the order yet, so I'm, I'll just say them in the order they come to me. But I know my five things, so let's... Um, I should also prefix as well, there's two things that I would say. Firstly, really, if I did this, all the things would be about my wife, who is very important to me. I love very much, and we're mm. very... I know everyone is close to their husband or wife, but I um, we're particularly close, and we sort of go everywhere together. But I didn't want to... I didn't want this to be very soppy. And, uh, I've got a sort of uh, tough guy image to keep up. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I haven't included the many things I would um, do with my wife, but she is a, a, a very important person to me. Also, I've I've listened to others, and mm. I've included things that would actually go in a time capsule. Oh, you've made it fit. Yeah, I don't. Nice. So I listened to Chaparax, who I think is an amazing comedian and a wonderful person. Mm-hmm. Uh, she put her children into the time capsule, <laughs> which I thought was a harrowing image of her, uh, burying her own children uh, because she loves them so much. Uh, so I've only included things that will actually be buried in the ground. Very good. I, I sort of leave it to people to make their own rules, really. And I like mm. it when people say, no, I've decided this is it. I've had some people who said, no, I am absolutely going to treat it like a time capsule that's going to be there for a long time. So almost found by an alien race in time to come. Time capsules often get dug up like five, ten years after. And I always think that's a bit rubbish. I yeah. think a time capsule should just be buried and left, and then it might be discovered by aliens in, in the future. That. To me, that's much more interesting than, um, yeah. yeah, I've got stuff in my cupboard at home that's over 10 years old. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you go, yeah, I've got one of those. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, brilliant. So let's um, go through them and we'll see what they are. But we'll take for granted that you would have put your wife in there. Yeah. Were it not for the fact she's still alive and you didn't want to bury her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't want to bury her alive. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very progressive like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my first item is some mini boglins. Um, I don't know if are you aware of mini boglins? No, what is it? I think this is quite a, a, a 90s specific toy. And they were, so they, you're aware of boglins, the toys. So these, these were smaller, right. little plastic toys. And um, there were different tribes. And each tribe had a chief and a king. The king had three horns. And there are all these sort of grips on the back. And I love these. So, and they're all sort of a bit like, um, a bit sort of gross. Like there was one that was like, had a microscope and was sticking his tongue out and looking at his tongue under a microscope. <laughs> and like one that was eating a whole pizza, one that was all melting. Mm. I really love these toys and, and um, had a whole load of them. And 
I was thinking about this recently because um, if, if listeners are not aware, I am an autistic man. And when I was a child, my favorite thing to do on a Saturday would be get all my boglins and I'd line them up in different orders, often with the sort of kings at the front and then the chiefs behind them and mm-hmm. then all the different groups like in order behind. And then I would take the one from the back of the line, put it to the front and then the one for the back line put it to the front so that the line would move along. And, uh, and I really like the way that when it would get to the end of like a cycle, I would, it would be the exact same order, even though it sort of cycled all the way around. Yeah. Um, and I found that very satisfying. And it's one of those things that I, lo- I look back on. And I think l- like all comedians, I have a complicated relationship with my parents. I think that's how you become a comedian. <laughs> when you're very young, you think your parents are the world. And then when you're a teenager, you think your parents are awful. And mm-hmm. as an adult, you're able to see there were these things my parents did, which were really good. And these things, which if I were a parent, I might sort of do differently. Yeah. And um, one of the things where I go, that was really good was that they never stopped me from playing in that unusual way. You know, I always wanted to sort of, yeah, just sort of line things up and organize things. That was how I wanted to play with toys. Mm-hmm. I liked toys where there were lots of little things that I could sort of organize. We talk, talked um, uh, earlier about uh, working in special needs education. And you still see that on like education, health and care plans and stuff like that, you know, about like there'd be targets about appropriate play and stuff like that, you know, mm. and it's sort of discouraged for children to play in a way that is seen as as inappropriate but my parents never told me how I should be playing with toys. You know, I played with toys in this, looking back, very unusual way. You know, I wouldn't be sort of telling stories and and they'd be talking to each other. I'd want yeah. to line them up. And I liked the way, I liked the sort of way they could be grouped in different ways. They could be grouped by what color they were, by the different sort of groups within the sort of toy set. And then there were the sort of different um, kings and the scouts that I could um, organize them by. And they're always, yeah, and and it's one of those things to look back on and think, you know, they must have, they must have noticed that, that was unusual, but they were never sort of um, critical of how I was playing. No. From my own experience of it, Joe, which is, you know, with my grandson, mm. we noticed that quite early. The same thing of that, of having all the cars in our house, and when he came round, he would just line them up in order of size, or then in mm. order of colour of the rainbow. But very much a matter of putting things in a line. Well, yeah, that's. I mean, that's one of the things they look for, isn't it? Um, mm. is, is that sort of play, and I th- and I think that's how I write comedy. I think that if I've got a bit I'm trying to work out, I'll drive and I will do the bit in my head over and over again, but slightly differently. Mm-hmm. So, what if I put this part of the sentence at the end, or what if I put emphasis on this word? Yeah. Uh, what if I put the emphasis on this word? What if I said it like this? What if I fret and just do it over and over again, but in slightly different ways. Mm. And that's the, I think that's the thing that people don't understand about sort of lining things up and enjoying that. It's not about trying to make them all the same. It's about noticing the ways that they are different and seeing the ways that these toys were all different and, um, and the different ways that they were similar and different. And, uh, you know, play leads to productive that, you know, the way you play as a child then leads to sort of productive things, certainly in the arts, isn't it? People talk about mm people more pretentious than me would talk about play <laughs> and uh, in the theatre or whatever. But, um, you know, I, I definitely feel that that sort of thing of lining things up and the way that I like to sort of um, play with toys as a child has sort of followed through into adulthood, certainly in the way that I write comedy. Mm. 
for all people associated with somebody in their family with autism, the worry is what are they going to do? How are they going to fit into the world? And in fact, we're the problem because we're thinking, oh, how do they fit into this world that we've created? Whereas, in fact, they shouldn't be made to fit into that world. They can create their own world. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you're talking about the social model of disability, really, aren't you? Yeah. Right? And and uh, I think, um, you know, that to me is a really powerful idea because I, I, I listen. You've had, um, and I think she's amazing, Jess Jess Tom on this. And, I have, uh, yeah, fabulous. I, I think she's uh, because she's quite funny. I think people often don't realize what a clever and like proper like sort of to be. She's almost like a political theorist. You know, the stuff that she's written about and said things which have really impacted me. I think she talks about being disabled rather than having a disability. Mm-hmm. And that's why uh, there's maybe a, a theme in this. I love comedy. And I the environment and the experience of comedy is less disabling than other environments. Mm-hmm. So when I think about what it is to be autistic, to be autistic within I'm, I'm the same amount of autistic my whole life, but within yeah. comedy... I'm sort of less disabled by that environment as an autistic person. You know, I um, you know, I get my own separate room at comedy gigs. You know, I go get in a quiet room. Yeah. Um, I've always I understand the conversation of comedy. I understand the the roles of of you know, it's very clear cut. I understand when people like the things I say. I understand where people don't like the things I say in comedy. You know, it's very very clear. Yeah, and. Um, I think people who don't know better would say that I appear more autistic off stage than on stage. Hmm. But I think I'm the same amount of autistic, but on stage I'm in an environment that works for me. And actually off stage I'm often there's more pressure to regulate myself and to to you know to say the right thing socially and to manage all those sorts of things. I'm being myself less off stage, but it's our own, it's our um society's um model of autisticness which the the only sort of model we have of it is of people struggling or of people sort of like so when we see someone doing well which usually happens when I do comedy <laughs> not all the time then we sort of that doesn't fit our um our sort of model of it it's the sort of like catch twenty two isn't it where like if you as a writer whose name I've forgotten has sort of written about this and, and has basically said that the sort of the the catch twenty two around autistic voices is that if autistic people are able to communicate clearly, then their autisticness is dismissed as we're well, not really autistic because you're communicating clearly. Mm. And those autistic people who communicate in maybe more different um, or unusual ways, that's dismissed as or we can't take those people seriously because they can't know what they're saying. <laughs> um, and that's the sort of uh, catch twenty two of it. I've gone yeah. way away from mini boglins. Um, I apologise. <laughs> I've gone off topic. No, I like the fact that we drift. But I always, I loved those toys when I was younger. Um, So, how old would you have been then? I would have been. I was just googling to say because so they came out. The first series was ninety four, and the second series was ninety six. So I think it was. I would have been. I think I was getting some of them at car boot sales. So I think maybe I was a little bit older. I was maybe seven or eight, something like that. I was born in nineteen eighty nine, and yeah, I I love those sort of like. I'm sure there are still toys like this, but toys that are a little bit gross and a little bit sort of like um, pushing the boundaries of what it is an acceptable thing for a toy to be. <laughs> we had, uh, they were a little bit sort of crude and gross and violent. And um, <laughs> I found that quite exciting. I had Mighty Max a lot. Do you remember Mighty Max? I don't. No, it was, um, I'm really old. It was like Polly Pocket, but for boys. Oh, right. And, uh, 
Mighty Maps was fantastic. Yeah, there were there were sort of monster head things that would open <laughs> up, and inside there'd be a little. Um, uh, it was like it was like Polly Pocket, but, but yeah. instead of like a doll's house, it was something gruesome. And uh, I always <laughs> like that sort of thing. So, did you have to try and get all of them? Yeah, I. There were some that were harder to get, and there were also some that came in cereal packets. Right. It's interesting now where where the idea of like collecting everything is much more accessible now because you could look online and know exactly what there is. But I didn't really know how many there were or what there was. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there a lot of them I got from car boots house stuff like that. I don't even think I've got a lot of them new. So you could feel as if you had them all when in fact you may not yes. have done. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a more exciting time before that. I mean, the internet is obviously brilliant, but it was an exciting time when like you sort of didn't know before the internet, you, you'd, there'd be a band you'd like and you wouldn't know that they had another album. So you go into a shop and you go, oh my God, they've got other albums. I can listen to this. Um, <laughs> yeah. it, was a, it was an exciting feeling. And also now you wouldn't know that there was that one toy in the collection that you didn't have that they only made 10 of and they were a thousand pounds on eBay. Yeah. Well, I've, I've looked up today. Yeah, there, there was a, so there was the first series which was like five tribes. I think they're called tribes. And then the second series came out two years later. And there was one of the tribes within there, which are apparently quite difficult to get. Uh, and this sort of blog only had pictures of three of them. The rest were kind of um, <laughs> uh, mythical. <laughs> so, um, uh, Don't go yeah. down that wormhole. Don't do no, it. No, no, that might hit my bank account if I start buying mini Boglins again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to give you the complete collection, though. It goes into the time capsule. Thank you. Oh, fantastic. But I can't use them. They're going in the time capsule. They're going in there, I'm afraid. They're just stored. Okay. <laughs> yes. But I can tell you where it's buried. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. That's number one. Right. So what's your second thing? Uh, my second thing I'm going to put in is a CD. Um, I thought about I'm a big music nerd. Um, probably... The album is going to be Music and Our Message by Public Enemy. Right. Which is probably the worst Public Enemy album. <laughs> but uh, it was the first... I love all music. Um, go and see live music all the time. It's a thing that I really connect with my dad on. He got me into some of my favourite musicians. He, he loves Bob Dylan. He loves Bruce Springsteen. He loves Tom Waits. Mm. Uh, Nick Cave. So we sort of share that a lot. But I absolutely love hip-hop music. And... Um, that is something I'm I'm yet to convince my dad on, <laughs> but uh, I I am of the belief that everyone will like hip hop music, but they just haven't heard the right hip hop music yet. You know, if they work yeah, yeah. hard enough, eventually everyone will realize how brilliant it was. It is, <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, music and our message by Public Enemy is their worst album, but I, I bought it. So when I was a teenager music was much more tribal than it is now i think young people now will listen to all sorts of different things mm. and there's no sort of contradiction between listening to you know the beatles and some pop music from now and some heavy metal music and some rap music but yeah. when i was growing up you either liked rap music or you liked rock music yeah. so i was in the rock music tribe and i wasn't allowed to like hip-hop music because those were the rules <laughs> and uh i picked up i don't know why I bought it. I think the cover's quite exciting. Did it have an explicit language label on it? Yes, that's always mm. appealing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, do you know the fact about the first album with one of them on? Do you know this? No, no, go on, tell me. I'm here to learn. I spend my life on this thing, learning things. <laughs> the, those stickers were invented for Frank Zappa, who um, released an album of instrumental pieces 
Um, but the song titles were so obscene that uh, they had that sticker on the front. <laughs> brilliant. Um, but yeah, so it was public. I mean, Public Enemy are brilliant, and it was. I just never heard. I'd never given rap music a chance, mm. um, and uh, it was just brilliant. You know, it sounded like nothing I'd ever heard before. It was angry. There was mm. there was poetry in it. It was funny. Had little sketches and things in it. <laughs> um, and I, I just, I absolutely f- fell in love with hip hop music. I think it's, it's proper like outside of music. You know, there, there's, there's rappers who, you know, are refugees who are from, who've been in prison, you know, mm. who've been drug addicts or people who are, who are, you know, I work in the arts now and <laughs> the arts are more accessible to some people than other people. And what I love about hip hop music is it is people to whom music and the arts isn't you know it, it isn't meant to it isn't meant to be for them you mm, know and yeah. they've demanded their place in the, in that sort of cultural space and um that's what i find very very exciting about it and it's all about new sounds and and sort of like um it's funny and i just just that was my entry point even though it's their worst album <laughs> it, it was at the time the best thing i'd ever heard but i love the fact that it filtered into everybody else's music that they all went oh no we've got to do a bit of this and i have no idea how to do it yes <laughs> i think of things like well you know he's not so bad but robbie williams suddenly he's got a rap on his thing and you go you really should have got someone else to do that robbie yeah there's that madonna album isn't there where she does a rap which i think mm. is not as bad as people say it is but it's, no, it's not good I, is it? no not good no i think that one of the things that makes those things so attractive to the people who discover them is that other people don't get it. And the, yeah, just the, the sort of language of... I, I love Biggie. I think he was incredible. And, mm-hmm. I, and I think he... So p- people think of Tupac as being the sort of poet, but mm. I think thing is, all of Biggie's stuff is not like... You know, it's not the most progressive. It hasn't aged well, you know. <laughs> but like as a poet, just the imagery of it, there's a song called Gimme the Loot that's just him... It's, but it's both him, but one sped up, so it sounds like he's talking to like a younger version of himself, right. and they're talking about how they're going to go out and and um, and rob people, and if they don't give them their money, they're gonna they're gonna kill them. But just like <laughs> within that, the poetry is just just brilliant. The imagery, like um, as the line where he says, "Putting all the, I'm putting holes in your sweater about yeah. shooting someone." I just there's uh, <laughs> I just I just think that that there's yeah, but hip hop is so there's so much I could say about it. It's it's, it's so different, you know. I like it. I love it all, or most of it. But I think people have often listened to one or two things. Yeah. And people who don't like it have often dismissed it because they've listened to one, one or two things. Mm. But it's so... so and, and now that it's such a global thing, you know, there's... Um, we all had to wait for Eminem to come along. And once he came along, we went, oh, I see. Yeah, that's quite clever. Yeah, I think he was an entry point for a lot of people. I never quite got Eminem... Yeah, for me, it was Public Enemy. And I, I think it was, mm. I, I listened to it at an age where I was quite sort of like politically aware as a teenager and was quite sort of angry. And, and you know, and that sort of spoke to me about sort of their their sort of activism. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think it's the, 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 the most exciting music we've seen in years. And and, uh, and that was my, if I hadn't bought that CD, then uh, I, I don't know what I would have, um, whether I would have ever sort of, I'm sure I would have found it a different way. Mm. And physical CDs have always been important. I still own all my CDs. Um, when I was a teenager, I was very unwell. I had very severe OCD. Mm. And it was very hard for me to go to, well, well sort of CD shops because um, 
a lot of my uh, compulsive rituals were about tapping items. So it was very difficult for me to touch things without having to touch them in certain sequences. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard to flick through CD racks. And that was, a, that was a sort of thing which when I got better from the OCD, I was then able to go and look for, and flick through all the CDs and find music. And, mm. and that was uh, such an exciting thing to sort of go, yeah, you know, to find new things. And like the music you hear when you're young, you know, the first time you hear that type of music is all so new. Mm. You know, the first time I was listening to any type of music, I've never heard anything like that before, you know? Yeah. And even, and because this album, Music and Our Message, is the worst Public Enemy album. <laughs> but to me as a teenager, it was the best thing because it was so unlike anything I'd ever heard before, you know? Mm. And the stuff they were saying was about America and about race and, and you know, was just, there were ideas I'd never really heard before you know i grew up in the, in the, in the suburbs and and mm. you know and, and uh hang on a minute this is an alien world and i'm and i'm being allowed into it yeah i think probably that's probably a theme of like most music i like really because I, I love nick cave and i love tom waits as well and i think mm. they have that thing of like i listen to uh, particularly that early tom waits stuff it's just an insight into a world where you go oh that that that's very unlike you know soldiers on shore leave going round and playing cards in these dodgy bars and like <laughs> you know that was very different to my sort of suburban life so i found that very exciting and you know and all the the horrific stuff that nick cave sings about you know that was very exciting did you see that amazing uh, if you if you didn't tell your dad there was an amazing photograph the other day in a spanish restaurant uh, i think it was in barcelona and um Bruce Springsteen was playing there and Spielberg and Barack Obama had flown in to see it. Right. The three of them went out to dinner. Wow. In this tiny little Spanish restaurant. And basically the man said, should we take a photograph? He said, yeah, sure. (laughs) The entire staff was standing there beaming. It's a brilliant photograph. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah, my dad. My dad's the big, big Springsteen fan. He will. I mean, my dad's going. He's doing two nights in London. My dad's going to both nights. You know? Oh, um, and uh, he. I've never quite got Springsteen in the way that my dad loves him. I think I get it more now as an adult. But you can see that same thing of uh, you know he's talking about long empty roads going through the desert and you know driving all night and all those sort of things. Yeah, and, and a great saga of his songs. And again, it is an alien world. It would have been an alien world to your dad. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, I always think of that. Did you see that Simon Munnery joke about um, I drove all night? Where he says, Springsteen's got somewhere he goes, I drove all night in the rain, in the snow. And Simon says, yeah, but in a car. <laughs> the rain's not coming in. I don't really know Public Enemy enough. I'm like a sort of a very evangelical about rap music. And I know that lots of people will, will think it's not for me, but I believe it's for everyone. And I believe that there is something which everyone will like because it's, so, um, it's so diverse hip-hop music is so different Mm. so there will be something for everyone and uh for me it was public enemy brilliant do the beastie boys count were they part of it yeah well i think the beastie boys sort of got back because they did that fight for your right to party song which was meant to be sort of making fun of sort of um sort of jocks wasn't it and that sort of frat boy culture but Mm. it's such a banger and it sounds so good at a a keg party that uh, I think it sort of ended up becoming the thing it was parodying. Okay, brilliant. Public Enemy goes into the time capsule. That's your second thing. So what's third, Joe? 
Okay, we like to follow the rules on this podcast most of the time, and the rules say we have to take a break for some adverts in the middle of the show. So here is that break. Back shortly. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back. Hopefully you weren't persuaded to part with too much hard-earned cash, or if you were, then the investment turns out to be worthwhile. Still, let's return to Joe Wells and discover what else he'd like to put in his time capsule and if I've heard of it. Um, I'm going to put in Gareth Richards' Omnicord. So Gareth Richards was uh, an amazing comedian, a friend of ours who, uh, mm. on day recording, died two weeks ago. Yes. Um, and and was, was obviously incredibly sad. We're very sad. I wish I had known of his work because almost every stand-up comedian who knew him was incredibly affected by it, weren't they? They were very upset by the whole thing. Yeah, I've never seen such... I've, I've never seen the comedy circuit united on anything. You know, no. there's always bickering. But Pete, because, yeah, he was such a brilliant person and and uh, incredibly thoughtful and, and we had... Um, uh, we drove to Edinburgh a few years ago mm. and, uh, yeah, spoke the whole way and was was a very thoughtful and kind person. And and, and his comedy was brilliant. And his comedy songs were amazing. There's a, a little EP on Spotify. There's a song called Don't Go Out With, which is... I, I, I remember him saying to me that he wanted his songs to be good songs in themselves, you know, mm. not, not just be funny, but also be good songs. Yeah. That song, Don't Go Out With, I think is fantastic. It sort of has like a simplicity of it like which sort of reminds me of like Daniel Johnson, someone like that. Mm. But so it also sort of reminds me of like um someone like Jarvis Cocker's solo stuff that was quite funny and a bit quirky. <laughs> like uh it's it's it, f- fantastic songs. And um yeah there there is there is lots of his stuff online. I think there's been sort of an effort of for people to sort of find stuff and put stuff on, online. Mm. But I think I think that that a lot of stuff exciting stuff that happens on the circuit often doesn't get sort of um documented. 
And I'm I'm glad there's a decent chunk of Gareth stuff because it, it was really, really funny and really brilliant and really unique. You know, there's, if I had to describe, if you said, what kind of comedy is it? I'd find that really difficult to answer because it's sort of, I, I guess it's it's not surreal as such, but it's a little bit sort of unusual and catches you sort of at, at a different, um, not how you're expecting it. Mm. It's silly, but not in the way that Tim Vine is silly. Mm-hmm. I think it's very different to what a lot of, when I started comedy, it was sort of at the end of an era where things were quite combative mm. and macho. And I'm not like that. And, uh, and it was brilliant to see someone like Gareth doing stuff that's, you know, sort of, sort of self-deprecating, but also sort of silly and a bit unusual and gentle. And it's not all about, you know, sort of like, uh, just laying into the audience or being really abrasive, you know, which I think, I think there's a place for being rude to people and being abrasive in comedy. Yeah, I love a lot yeah. of that comedy too. <laughs> but um, but not actually attacking someone. It's unusual because normally people look for a target in comedy, don't they? Yeah, and Gareth was all, I guess sometimes he was the target himself, but also a lot of mm. it was just sort of silly and um, and he really reflected on um, a, a fantastic Edinburgh show, which we saw in 2019. Yeah, mm-hmm. 2019, the last one before the pandemic. Yeah. And uh, he redid a song, a song called Dave the Fridge that he did in his first show about his friend called Dave, who's a lot like a fridge. <laughs> and um, the sort of the punchline is slightly, so I think it's one of those things where like most comedy audiences would still laugh at it, but it was, you were slightly sort of like uh, fat shaming. I think mm-hmm. it was something about Dave having a girlfriend who's also like a fridge because she's massive or something like that was the, the joke. <laughs> but Gareth had like reflected on that and gone, actually, that's not the kind of thing I want to do. And he did a new version of the song in that show. And I think that was, I, I really loved that of sort of like looking back and, and you know, not pretending you didn't do that stuff, but also sort of reflecting and improving things, you know? Mm. Um yeah, it's devastatingly sad, and uh, it was brilliant. But I hope that um, when you thought, when I thought about things I want to preserve, you know, that that's um, his work is a thing that I really want to preserve. You know, there are there are very very famous comedians where you know that there's thousands and thousands of DVDs that will always be there. You know, in a thousand years time, there'd be a copy of Jimmy Carr's DVD somewhere in a charity <laughs> shop. But uh, I think that. Um, work uh, by people like Gareth I think is important to preserve. Uh, well, it absolutely is. that The more I do this, the more I talk to different comedians at different levels in their career, it's very interesting to see how similar people are in the journey they're making. Do you know, the people I've spoken to, people who, who you would say have sort of almost attained the top of their career, and they still talk about stand-up as being the same thing it was when they were playing to 50 people in a, in a pub, you know, or 15 people in a pub even. It's still the same process. And they still love it for that process. Yeah, I, I love stand-up so much. I'm really defensive. I think that stand-up gets criticised from sort of from all sides. You get people sort of on, on the right going, oh, stand-up's really, really woke now and no one <laughs> says anything, that you can't say anything. And then you get people on the left who sort of, character stand up as sort of this really cruel and 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 you know i'm i'm not going to pretend that there's not comedians who make jokes that i don't like but i think that if you if you go to a, a comedy club you will see something that i i think is really exciting we see people from different backgrounds with different life experiences in a mainstream setting you know mm-hmm. this isn't something that sort of 
niche that you've got to, you know, some sort of obscure book that you've got to find. You know, this is accessible mainstream stuff. And people are talking about their experience. Why, as an autistic person, I love stand-up. I can talk about those experiences. And I don't want to be too high-minded about what I'm doing because ultimately, you know, I think most people go away hopefully thinking that was very funny mm. but i do also like to think that i am sort of putting ideas out there and um making people think differently about autisticness i'm sure of that yeah and i, and I just i think you know like I, I saw um jordan gray recently you know she's brilliant and mm. jordan will perform in front of people who've probably never met a transgender person in their lives you know no. probably have only heard about transgender people from the news you know or, or stuff online yeah. you know and i think that's really powerful that you know at, at the you know wherever it is comedy store top seagull all those sorts of clubs there'd be people from backgrounds that those audience members maybe haven't heard from before and they're hearing a sort of um an honest experience from those those people i think often in life one of the problems that people suffer is not recognizing what they're looking at they don't know it and so they're frightened of it i heard two people today talking on the radio about um racism and people saying things like you know go back to your own country if you don't like it here go back to where you come from Mm. and the bloke said well i would but i can't afford the property prices in essex (laughs) <laughs> so if you say having a transgender person standing up and watching them perform making you laugh it's an important thing to happen yeah so i, th- I think almost all comedy certainly all comedy that i like is sort of like presenting like a different way of being and thinking about things you know G- gareth's comedy was never big p political but it's interesting seeing a man being very very funny and holding a room in a mm. way that isn't sort of bullying or unkind that is actually a very sort of interesting thing to see. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure you're the same, like where I will often be talking about some big idea or political thing or something like that, and I'll be reminded of a joke that a comedian's told, you know, and I think a lot of the way that I've sort of, um, I've often seen particularly British comedians have done comedy that's made me think differently about things, mm-hmm. which is very rare for any art to do, really, you know. You're absolutely right. That simple bursting of the bubble, it can be amazingly effective, I think. Mm. Well, that's the, that's the thing. I, I, like I said, I, I love Public Enemy, but they don't make me think differently about things because I already broadly agree with a lot of their politics. But <laughs> I think there's been comedians because comedy can catch you sort of like, catch you what's the, with your sort of, um, what's the expression I'm grabbing for? So catch you with your guard, guard down. It can make you sort of think differently about things. And I think that there's lots of comedians who have sort of changed my my views on on things. You can ask me for an example, and I can't think of any right now. But, uh, <laughs> but there, there definitely are, you know, things where I've gone, oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's weird that we do that. It's weird that we think that way about things, yeah. Yeah, I never used to be racist. And then I saw, no, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, do, I do think it has, yeah, hasn't it? I remember seeing a, a brilliant... Um, black comic called Fombi Omatayo. I don't know mm. if you know him, but he's fantastic. I have fantastic. not seen him, yeah, he's very funny. And um, seeing him in, I won't say which area, but an area of southern England. <laughs> I saw him in Tunbridge Wells. So Right, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't Tunbridge Wells. No. But, uh, but you know, with a, with a similar, um, uh, I would say a, an area of the south that is to the right of Tunbridge Wells. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we're actually probably a lot of people in that audience did hold you know some racist views and and did sort of think you know that that if you're you know if you people aren't sort of properly british you know and that like but then they were listening to that experience you know and i'm and 
Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe those people went away and still believe the things they did before. But I think seeing and laughing at and connecting with mm. the experience of a black British man is very powerful. And I think, I think it does have, have an impact on people's views. Yeah. But I, I would can... say that, wouldn't I, as a comedian? No I, no, I agree with you, though. I can't see how it can't. I think quite often, if you can make someone laugh, it puts them on the back foot, doesn't it? I mean, this is this is a maybe a this is a slightly different example, but like, like I, I think Jeff Norcott is a brilliant comedian, mm-hmm. and uh, listen, he hasn't he hasn't made me a Tory, but he <laughs> he has made me think differently about people who vote differently to me. You know, I do yeah. think seeing Jeff, like, you know, I think that before. I'd sort of, you know, and, 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 and other experiences. But I think when I was younger, I was sort of very black and white politically. Mm. And people like Jeff make me go, I think Jeff is a very thoughtful and interesting person, even though I disagree with him on most things. Yeah, yeah. But uh, you do recognise yourself in the people that he's parodying. I've, I've seen mm. it. You go, ah, oh, yeah, no, I've said things like that. It's easy to say those sort of things. Nothing is that cut and dry, I think. No, no, no. That's a complicated word. Mm. Well, okay. Well, it's, it's it was really tragic, and I I didn't know Gareth, but um, it's a very sad thing. So hopefully, yes, I think it's really important we preserve his work because it was brilliant. Absolutely. Okay, that's it. That's three things, then, Joe. Um, so we've got one more you want to keep, and one you'd like to forget. Uh, so I would like to keep um, a book called Nobody Nowhere by. So I will call her Polly Samuel. She changed her name later in her life, but it was written under the name Donna Williams. Right. Um, I don't know if you're aware of her work. No, you're revealing all my ignorances here. <laughs> Sorry. That's all right. She was one of the first autistic people to write about being autistic. Um, Polly Samuel is not as famous as I believe she should be. Temple mm. Grandin is the famous autistic writer. I'm, I'm mm. sure you've heard of Temple Grandin. And I think that Temple Grandin said some really important things and was an important person. She's also said some things that I do not agree with quite strongly. Mm-hmm. Um But Polly Samuel, I think her work was so ahead of its time. And I think it's a real shame that it wasn't picked up in the same way that Temple Grandin's work was. When was she writing? Similar time. So so from the early 90s. Mm. um, she, She died a few years ago. I think her whole outlook was so different and so radical that it was almost too ahead of its... I, I think the Temple Grandin stuff was very much like, you know, autistic people think differently. So that could, in the right circumstances, be used to, um, you know, invent things and, and you know, and think differently can be useful in these specific circumstances. Yeah, so they should all work for Apple. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think that what's radical about Polly Samuel is that she's just going, just the experience of being autistic... And seeing things differently and experiencing the world differently is like of inherent value, you know? Mm-hmm. It's not about what you can build, what you can make, how much money you can earn, you know, whether you are living completely independently. Everyone is, it feels like everyone's included in Polly Samuel's worldview, you know, mm-hmm. that that being different and experiencing the world in a different way. She talked very interestingly about sort of sensory experiences and experiencing the senses in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, there's fantastic, uh, uh, someone I know, made a film with her before she died. And there's this fantastic scene. I hope it gets, uh, he's been working on it for a while. So I hope when, that this scene is included when it's, well, I've said to him, it must be included because I love this scene. She's, she's in a supermarket and there's, she's looking at the crisp packets and she's sort of saying all of these different colours and it's so beautiful and so exciting. Mm. And most people don't realise how beautiful this big row of crisp packets of different, different colours is, but I <laughs> see it. And my experience is like, 
more, um, there's such a richness to that experience. To me, that was such a powerful scene because it wasn't thinking about like, this is a superpower that makes me do this. You know, it was just saying this experience is really important, exciting and of value. Mm. And she was one of the first people who sort of um, linked up autistic people and shared that, that that experience with where people started to talk to each other. And she'd have dinner parties where autistic people would come round her house and they'd bring their favourite shiny object and they'd all show each other and go, look how beautiful this, this is. <laughs> and um, I forget the name of the organisation. She founded this organisation with someone called, um, I hope I've got the name right, Jim Sinclair, mm-hmm. I think is the name, who wrote an essay called Don't Mourn For Us, which I think is like a really important essay where he's, he's sort of addressing parents and, and sort of saying that autistic people aren't, that the sort of the, 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 the mainstream view uh, was that autistic people are neurotypical people with autism around them. Mm. But he was saying, no, we're completely autistic all the way through. Yeah. Um, it's, there's not like a little neurotypical person inside this, this, um, <laughs> if this only we could find autism share. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I think she was sort of like, I think she's such an important figure. And I, and I, I believe that in so some of her books are quite, cause nobody nowhere was her first book. And it wasn't really written to be published. It was written because she, she's um, had had a very um, traumatic life and she'd just sort of written, a, you know, almost as a sort of to just putting stuff out there and someone got a hold of it. Whereas Temple Grandin was writing like guidebooks for parents. This is what, you know, where, whereas Donald Williams was going, here's my experience. Here's what it is, you know. So it's, it's a much, it's maybe a less, it's not the most accessible book. She also had dissociative identity disorder. So she had these different altars. And in the book, she writes about those altars mm-hmm. and doesn't nec- doesn't always tell you that they are altars. So it's a little <laughs> bit confusing. Yeah, you don't know which one she's talking about. Yeah, but I, th- I think that... Uh, her whole sort of worldview, I think, is really radical and important and so ahead of even now, you know, I think that even now we're talking about superpowers and, and you know, and, and how, I guess, I guess it's sort of like how people are, um, people are valued by sort of what they can make and what they can do and they've, autistic people are often valued in terms of their value to the neurotypical world. Mm. And I think that that worldview of like, um, as a lovely paragraph, which contains some, some dated language, but she's sort of saying that people say that she's crazy, but she'd rather be crazy. It's better to be crazy. And all the words she's used against her, mm-hmm. she's like, well, no, I think these are good because I experience things and, and that my experiences are are good. There's a, she wrote songs as well. There's a song called Simply Be, which I think really like encapsulates her worldview of like, um, she says, if this is crazy, don't give me sane, let hmm. me simply be. And um, I, th- I think I think she's a really brilliant and important and sort of underrated person. Mm. And I believe that in um, I don't know when it will be. It could be in ten years' time, it could be twenty years' time. But I believe in the future, she will be seen as like a really important figure who wasn't appreciated in her time. When we catch up, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a difficult thing to change your mindset, particularly I think, sadly, for neurotypical people, uh, is that we we sort of are told. If you fit into the world, then you're right. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So you get used to the idea that, well, I see, I understand how everything works. And, and yeah, yeah. things don't bother me. I understand all that. I understand that you can cue. And I understand. I, I know. I've got all that. I've got it. I'm fine. And so when you come across things that aren't typical, you go, well, be typical. Yeah, yeah. Be like me. 
And actually, one of the great problems in the world is that we all want people to be like us. We all think that we're typical. And in fact, nobody is. Yeah, I mean, I think I think obviously there's a sort of clump of people who are more typical than others. But I think, yeah, I think you're right. And um, no one likes to think that they sort of value being normal. But I think it's such <laughs> a cultural thing that we do that the idea of being normal, that's mm-hmm. what everyone does, you know, is really, really strong. It comes back to the lining up toys, you know, that yeah. like they call it inappropriate play, you know, lining up the toys. And so Polly Samuel would, you know, throw that out and be like, no, it's good to line up your toys. That's a good way of um, yeah. of playing, you know, and that's an exciting experience. Mm. And um, it's very hard to um, much, you know, I like to think I'm very progressive on these things, but definitely, you know, I think it's very hardwired into all of us, you know, that, that we, that, you know, if things are different or unusual, we're sort of taught to be suspicious of them. My, I'm working on a, a new show for The Fringe and a lot of it's about sort of um, autistic representation and a lot of sort of... Um, when you see stuff in in sort of sitcoms and films and stuff like that, just being weird and different is seen as like something to be worried about, something to be suspicious mm. of and, and mm-hmm. to be frightened of, you know? Mm. And I think that um, that's very sort of hardwired into us, into us culturally. Yeah. Well, not hardwired, but, you know, has been, has been, I don't know what the, the expression is, but, you know, has been pushed into us and yeah. very hard. I look at the whole system of education and, and what people are taught and how they're taught, and it just doesn't suit a lot of people. It really doesn't suit most people, actually. But it's a system that was set up, I don't know, 150 years ago, and we absolutely stick to it. The people who make the decisions, who all went through that process and survived it, and therefore are in the position to say whether that's right or not, are bound to be biased. They're bound to say, mm. you know, it's a good system. Look at me. I'm prime minister. Yes, yeah, yeah. And you go, yeah, but actually it's a bad system because you're prime minister. <laughs> not thinking about anyone in particular, just uh, no, generally. Yeah. No one in particular, no, no. Almost all prime ministers, I think, probably applies yeah. to. One of the things, like working in education for uh, uh, for sort of five, six years as I did, like you've realised how sort of restrictive school is and how hard I've, I've have such sympathy for young people in schools because you are, you do have there's so much sort of conformity pushed on you mm. and then when you leave school you go well I'll find people who are like me I'll find a job that works for me and that's what I did you know I, I don't have to get up till 11 o'clock you know I, no. I can do like the <laughs> things that I want to do and and um you know and I know that doesn't work out that way for everyone but school is so sort of built for one type of person yeah which you know is probably as you say you know I, d- I don't even think it's the sort of the most typical person but it's not even the majority I don't think I think lots of people at school you know aren't taught in the right way you know no but I can't remember if she said it to me or whether it was in her book, but she talked about how when she was at school, um, she wasn't expected that she'd sort of go on to college or anything like that. But she realised that she could take in information a lot better if if she was moving. So she went out with the dog and stuff like that. So she just recorded all her lessons and then listened to them whilst walking the dog. Mm. And was like, oh, this is how I, I learned, you know? And the yeah. school system hadn't given her an opportunity to learn in a, in a different way. Yeah. I don't think the way I present when I am listening and engaging with people is how people think listening and engaging is. Mm. But actually, when I try and mask, try and make eye contact with people properly, 
And I usually do that by looking like in the middle of their eyebrows. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not really listening to what they're saying. I'm thinking about how uncomfortable this is and trying to get it right and trying to not do too much eye contact because that can be weird as well. That's exactly what Jess said to me. She said the same thing. Mm. She said, if I'm concentrating on not ticking and not moving and not swearing and not saying the same thing again and all the little things that I have, if I'm concentrating on sitting still, therefore supposedly giving off the impression that I'm doing what everybody wants me to do, which is concentrating. All I'm concentrating on is not doing the things that I would do normally. And I'm not listening to a word you're saying. Yeah. Mm. I remember going, when I was sort of fairly newly, um, I've got a slightly complicated story because I had like an informal diagnosis as a child and then uh, there was lots of stuff I didn't know and then I found out about it as an adult and had the formal diagnosis as mm. an adult but sort of fairly shortly after that formal diagnosis but I remember being at the Edinburgh Fringe and going for a drink after Tiff Stevenson's show with Tiff who um, it, I think is a really thoughtful and interesting person mm. and um, we're in a fairly noisy bar and I remember thinking oh well, I'm not going to try and like make eye contact and do all the right things socially like because I, ca- I can't I won't take anything and it was the first like conversation where I'd properly gone, no, I'm not going to do that. Mm. And then just being able to engage with someone who I think is very, because if I have, if I force myself to make eye contact, like I can have like simple conversations, but it's like, you know, I'm not running on sort of full capacity, you know, no. and, um, you know, Tiff will talk about politics and, and feminism and stuff like that, mm. you know, and, and if I'm, I can't have those more complicated conversations whilst making eye contact. I think I'm, I'm, atypical of of autistic people in that i quite like phone conversations because i think i sometimes overthink emails and text messages Mm. and i feel like if i phone someone i can i can properly explain what i've got to say Mm. um also there's an element of like if i'm stressing about what to put in an email i can if i've had the phone conversation it's done um and i think that links with uh, neatly back with what what um polly wrote about you know when Mm. I, i realized that once i was being myself i was able to engage in conversations a lot more because I was being sort of truer to myself. And mm. whilst that sounds very corny, you know, it meant that I was having sort of this this really great conversation with someone who I think is really interesting. It's a weird thing when you start to unmask because it comes back to that thing of like our model of autisticness is of um, people sort of struggling because there's that sort of like stigma. So I think some people would see me unmasking and think, oh, his autism's got worse. <laughs> but actually what's happened is that I'm being myself more and actually I'm a lot more relaxed and happy, mm-hmm. but I'm more visibly autistic than yeah. I was before. Um, but actually I'm I'm sort of a lot more relaxed, a lot mm-hmm. less tired, I'm listening to people a lot more. Um, I, I remember going to work meetings and I didn't listen to a single thing that was said. <laughs> I go, my old job, a lot of it was meeting people from different, you know, connecting with different services and finding yeah. out. So, you know, I'd have to go and meet this, this new, you know, the new service has been set up. I've got to go and meet with the manager and, uh, <laughs> and I'd go and I'd go and I'd walk out and I'd think, I don't really know what they do at all. I haven't engaged in that conversation. Um, I hope that no one who employed me is listening to this. <laughs> um, but now I'm able to, you know, if, if I allow myself to unmask a little bit, I can engage in those conversations more and it's, um, mm. I'm able to do better work, you know? Yeah, of course. I love your description of the writing that you do, the fact that you drive. You say you drive. You drive around and just sort of say it again and again in different ways until you go, no, that's the one. Yeah, I've, I've always said, I think, like, I wasn't good 
this maybe links into the, my fifth thing, actually. Okay, yeah. Um, Let's say Polly's in there. Yes, yes. Her writing is in there. So if you want to move yeah, on to the next her writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is the thing I want to get rid of and bury. Mm-hmm. Is this right? Yeah. So I would like to get rid of and bury my English teacher from secondary school. <laughs> um, and uh, I had, I had uh, more than one, but one in particular. Um, I had others that were nice, so I'm not going to name them. No. Um, but uh, I do want them to be buried. Um, they were quite old. I don't know whether they're still alive, but either way, I want them buried. Uh, because uh, that was the thing about us about writing, where I was always made to feel that I was bad at writing mm. at school. And it was because the way that I was taught to write was, I think, a very neurotypical way of writing. You know, it was that like you start at the beginning and you, and you sort of things flow out of you and that's how writing works, you know, and it's mm-hmm. almost this sort of like um, a sort of spiritual thing, you know, and I, I was never able to do it like that. But I always like jokes. And I remember this English teacher told me off for in the library time I was reading. They had these like books called, I think, called like essential articles and like that. They had like news stories from throughout modern history. And it also had like satirical cartoons in them. So I wanted to go and look at those sort of, and she, she really, really told me off for reading those. I didn't quite understand why I was being told off. Mm. And I think that that teacher generally didn't like me and really put me off writing and sort of saw me as someone that wasn't good at writing. So it wasn't worth sort of bothering with. Mm. And then a few years later, I had my first book contract when I was 15 <laughs> and uh, I must have really annoyed her. <laughs> but because uh, I, I think I sort of started to realise I did like writing and writing in my own time, but the way I wrote was different to how I was taught to write. Mm. And I always liked jokes and I think that jokes are quite sort of like, I like because I, I was always quite interested in like, and it's criticised in that English teaching that like, People talk about like um, sentence clauses and stuff like that. But I was always quite interested in that, you know, the way in which if you put part of the sentence at the beginning or at the end, it can change the meaning and you could have the same sentence, the same ideas, Mm. and you could frame them in different ways. It's that sort of like classic pullback and reveal, you know, like uh, someone saying every day at at, at school, um, this sick form kids used to put my head down the toilet. And in the end, I said, I don't want to be a head teacher anymore. That sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. Like, so that's, that's about that sentence. You're putting the information at the end and it changes the meaning of the, the sentence. Yes. That's how that Somebody today works. tweeted to me, I love the English language. Just one word can change the whole meaning of something. And it was basically because I'd said, you know, you won't find me swearing for the king. And somebody said, oh, when he's on the telly, I swear all the time. <laughs> it's exactly right you know yeah i was always fascinated by jokes and like yeah double meanings and that sort of thing yeah and that that was that is how i write i think that the way i write is very autistic and very systemizing it's very much about like thinking about different i think it's why a lot of comics right i don't think it's unique to me mm-hmm. but you know like sometimes a bit won't be working and then you sort of have to reframe the whole thing. So it's sort of where you put the information and you have to think about like what, and, and that's sort of like working out like a puzzle. Mm. That was, I was never taught to write like that at school. And this English teacher in particular was very much about the sort of magic of storytelling. And I was made to believe that storytelling and writing was something you just have and it would flow out of you rather than it being like an interesting puzzle that you could work out. Yes. Because you saw me opening for Frankie Boyle 
And I did a joke, which I think I did that night, about the Queen's charity work, mm-hmm. which that only works in front of Frankie's audience. And I really <laughs> love it. So I was, I was so um, happy when I got to open for him, partly because I knew I could do that that joke. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting because I know Frankie's got a sort of, um, he's, I think he's a very interesting comedian in that he's sort of evolved so much. He's an amazing man, isn't he? Yeah. When I first did the support for him, in 2016 mm. i thought i thought we did was fun and and you know but it wasn't necessarily particularly my thing mm. but um you know in the past sort of six seven years i think he's just one of the best yeah he can just put like political ideas into just encapsulate them so well uh, amazingly well written jokes as well though he had a joke what i remember him doing about people being disadvantaged and they say the word disadvantaged on the new or mm. like that's the word they use for different groups disadvantaged and he says that's because you're not allowed to say that people are fucked on the news <laughs> otherwise they'd be in parts of Glasgow going look everyone here is fucked and uh, <laughs> I remember in my job there was young people who were brilliant who I really liked but mm. had so many just social factors stacked against them mm-hmm. and we'd I'd, I'd be meeting with commissioners so they're very sort of like to some extent removed from the real young people who I was also meeting. So I was in this weird position where I was, I was sort of meeting people at the, not the bottom of the system, but at the front end of the system mm. and people right at the sort of commissioning end of the system. And they'd be talked, you know, we'd have this sort of conversation about disadvantaged groups and seldom heard groups and stuff like that. And yeah. I always used to think of that Frankie bit of just going like, you can talk about disadvantages in a very euphemistic way. Yeah. But actually, like, this horrible thing's happened to this person. Now they've got loads of trauma and, and you know, and they've, they're learning disabled and there's not enough money to fund this, this and this. And, yeah. you know, it's not a case of um, them being disadvantaged. It's a case of them being really screwed over. It's such a gentle word as well, isn't it? It sounds so gentle. It's disadvantaged. It's just slightly disadvantaged. You've got to, no. Yeah, yeah. Fucked. They are fucked. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, did you enjoy Frankie's show, though? I, did. I love his stuff, yeah. I don't know whether he did it that night, but it, did he do the joke about killing a police officer? Oh, yeah, no, he did, yeah. Pretty Patel made it so that it's a mandatory life sentence if you kill a police officer. And he says, but what if I'm trying to stop a rape? Yeah. <laughs> and like, that's just so like... It's an amazing so joke, isn't it? to power, isn't it? And so yeah. like that, you know that J.G. Ballard quote about rubbing society's face in its own vomit, you know? Because <laughs> yeah. like, all the parts of that joke are just a truth, you know? It's just presenting a, a fact mm-hmm. to an audience that's really, really, really uncomfortable. And, like, when you hear it, it's like, oh, that's a really abrasive, horrible thing that he said. Yeah. But he's just showing you this is, you know, he's just holding up, like, this is the, the Metropolitan Police. It's one of those things where you could easily stop at that point and say, come on, anybody want to argue with that? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd love to see that get heckled. I'd love to see someone heckle that and him go, "What? what is your problem with it? <laughs> yeah. It's a real, like, example of, like, I really believe in that thing of, like, the villains are the politicians and the and the people doing things rather than the comedians saying things. Mm. And I think that's, like, such an example of, like, him drawing attention to that, of, like, you know, the villain here is the people doing things, not me saying things. Absolutely, yeah. I think I saw that on Question Time, somebody saying, look, we can't let one bad apple spoil... And you go, what? People always misunderstand the bad apple thing because the expression is one bad apple spoils the barrel or something like no, that, isn't the it? Barrel, like, yeah. 
yeah, so the point is, that if you have one bad apple, then they're all bad. Yeah. Um, I love that that Chris Rock bit about a few. Have you seen that? About Imagine if a pilot said, you know, well, there's a few bad apples and a few of them crashed the planes, <laughs> but most of them are all right. You know? yeah. <laughs> no, they need to all be good. Um, well, I should imagine your English teacher, out of shame, has already buried themselves. Do you know, I, I was not a... Um, there were some teachers who I loved at school, but mm. it's when you look back on... I So here's a thing that sticks with me. I was, it's like first week of school, we're all getting lined up. And then one girl was talking a bit, not sort of showing off it, just talking to her friend. And then one teacher pulls her out to the front of the playground, we're all lined up and shouts in her face, just shouting her face. And she starts crying. Oh. And then he continues shouting, telling her there's no use crying about it. Oh. And, uh, I look back on that and go, what What was going... Was he going through a bad divorce or something like that? What was, the, what was the story, you know? I went to a, a Catholic school where I think the sort of disciplinary stuff was... I think they were still a little bit annoyed they weren't allowed to hit us anymore. <laughs> and uh, so there was a lot of... Um, uh, yeah. So, I mean, if there's if there's room in the time capsule, there's probably a few more teachers that I would put in. Yeah. And some lovely teachers that I had. But, um, mm. yeah, I'll throw a few more in. Brilliant. Well, um, I'm coming up to Edinburgh. I'm going to definitely come and see you. What's the name of the show? It's called King of the Autistics. King of um, the Autistics, that's right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. No one stopped me calling it that, so that's what it's called. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> you put people in a position where you go, go on, try and tell me I can't. Well, it's your, I think it was that I'm always sort of conscious of, like, being... We have this thing where if you're from, like, a group and you've sort of got any sort of platform, you have to be a spokesperson for that whole group, you know, mm. and and then and then you're in the position where if I think something which is different to most autistic people, which will be the case on lots of things, I can see why people will feel let down by me, you know, and, and yeah, I yeah. always feel like I only want to, like, represent myself. But I thought it'd be funny to <laughs> um, have a deliberately arrogant, um, over-the-top King of the Autistics uh, show <laughs> title to sort of make fun of that idea. <laughs> That's it. I'm going to get my grandson to stand outside with a sign saying, not my king. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, have a fantastic time, uh, and uh, I look forward to seeing you up there. Uh, it's really lovely to talk to you, Joe. And, Thank you. Uh, as far as pop music is concerned, a real education. <laughs> oh, I will, I will send you a, a playlist of, of hip-hop music, and I'll keep doing it until you like it. So <laughs> It will happen to everyone. There's, there's people who like hip-hop music and people who don't know that they like it yet. Those are the two groups. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Bye. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Joe Wells. We have links alongside this episode to all the things Joe is up to, so do go and see him work if you get the opportunity, and do buy his books. As far as I'm concerned, well, I'll be happy if you just click on subscribe and five stars as a rating. And if you are a rating, in the Navy that is, it'll make it all the more impressive. The jolly theme tune you can hear playing in the background is available on Spotify with no talking over it. It was written and performed by Pass the Peas Music. And if you're on social media, then so am I. And so is my time capsule. Hey, let's all meet up in the year 2000. Won't it be strange when... Actually, we've missed the chance. So let's just link up on social media and chat. 
I'm at Fenton Stevens or at Mike Fenton Stevens. It varies. And my time capsule is at my TC pod. So do follow us. We're very friendly, I promise. In fact, if you're very keen on us, but don't enjoy the ads, then you can subscribe to Acast Plus and get this podcast ad-free. Details in the description of this pod. This was a cast-off production for Acast. Now, you see what we did there? A cast-off production for Acast. Yeah, it's not that clever, but it keeps us amused. Actually, I'm not even sure we thought of that at the time, so like most things on this podcast, it's an accident. Anyway, our producer was John Fenton-Stevens. No accident there. Right, I'm off to check on my (laughs) neighbour, Blue Peter. No, he's not named after the children's TV programme, if you're wondering. No, no, he's called Blue Peter because he's got terrible circulation. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.